This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Amen. You may have a seat, and good morning uh, to all of you. Good morning to those of you uh, who are streaming online, where you may find yourself. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all our moms, grandmas, and of course, it's been a blessing of mine to have mom a part of our church these 27 years. Uh, so, good to see you all uh, this morning. Uh, if you're visiting, we have been uh, making our way sequentially through a New Testament book, the book of Acts, the book of Acts, and Today we're looking at the core of two chapters, chapters 25 and 26. You'll find chapter 26 on page 935 in uh, the Black Pew Bibles we provide for you. And uh, in case you are watching online, I do want to say our hearts go out to the Strader family and the loss of Paul. You know, Paul uh, began attending here in 2007. He hadn't been here much these last few years with all his health problems, but especially uh, after COVID. But he did make it here a few times the last few months, but he went to be with the Lord yesterday. So our, our prayers are with the family, uh, the Strader household. You know, uh, in Acts 9.15, you don't need to, to turn there, uh, Jesus says of Paul, let me get there. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that prophetic statement of Jesus that Paul would be his servant who would stand before kings and carry his name, preach the gospel, that is fulfilled here in chapters 25 and 26, particularly chapter 26. Now, last week, if uh, you were here with us, uh, we saw how the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a very troublesome time, stood by him in prison after his arrest in Jerusalem, and there he reassured Paul by affirming him of his knowledge of his circumstances, his presence with him, and his divine sovereignty over all circumstances. And we also noted that from that point on, Paul would be a prisoner, a, a prisoner of Rome from that point all the way to the end of the book of Acts. And four times Paul would give a defense of himself and the gospel. First, after having spoken to the mob uh, in Jerusalem, he addressed the religious leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, in chapter 23, then he addressed the Roman governor, Felix, in chapter 24, and that's a, a part that we covered last week. And then he addresses the new governor, Festus, in chapter 25. Remember, Felix kept Paul in prison for two years, and then Festus followed him, and Paul repeats his case before Festus in chapter 25. And then lastly, he addresses King Herod Agrippa the second in chapter 26, the king of the Jews. Now, Paul's defense before Agrippa in chapter 26 is the last major message 
from the lips of Paul recorded in the book of Acts. So it will be the focus of our time this morning. Uh, his defense before Agrippa, strictly speaking, is not a legal trial. It was a hearing, an inquiry uh, to advise Festus, the new governor, who was convinced of Paul's innocence, having heard Paul say what he say, but in a desire to appease the Jews, he asked Paul if he would wanted to go back to Jerusalem to be tried. Um, Paul said, no way. <laughs> I know what waits me in Jerusalem. <laughs> he said, this is a civil matter, really. And so Paul appealed to C Caesar, uh, and that was the right of any Roman citizen. You could do that, but it better not be a trivial matter, because you could lose your head, literally, <laughs> if that was just something trivial. And so Festus conferred with his counselors, and they said, this might be worthy of it. And so he said, okay. Uh, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But then he realized he put himself in a tough spot. He doesn't think Paul's guilty of anything. And yet if he's going to send him to Caesar, what's he going to Caesar for? <laughs> what's he going to write? What are the charges that are going to go uh, with Paul? And so he says that in verse 25 of chapter 25. Uh, he calls King Agrippa who was coming to the area, and he wants Agrippa's opinion on this. Look at verse 25 of chapter 25. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, that's to Nero, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all. There was a crowd of people there, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable <laughs> in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yes, good point. <laughs> and so Paul is given the opportunity to address Agrippa. I'm going to read part of chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. This was actually a bunch of pomp and circumstance, and they all entered in, you know. Uh, then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Israel, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. <clears throat> and for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. What is the hope of the promises? Here's what he says. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In other words, the great hope is the resurrection, you see. And that's why I'm on trial. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, 
And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And now he explains his conversion and his commission to the gospel. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we, all of them, had, had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. We've seen some of those in Corinth and then here in the prison in Jerusalem. He's appeared to him twice since Damascus Road. <clears throat> Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. He's done that repeatedly to whom I am sending you. Why was he being sent? Verse 18, here's the heart of it all. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a wonderful summary of the gospel right there. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Amen. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul believes the gospel is found in the, in the prophets. And here's what the prophets say, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I stop there. This is the word of God. (laughs) May the Lord bless the word in your hearing and in in your hearts this morning. I want to say again that though his defense before Agrippa is technically not an official legal trial per se because it will determine what information was going to be sent to Caesar. This hearing, even though it wasn't an official trial, will actually constitute the basis of Paul's trial before Nero because it will set the charges in place. And so it's very important to Paul. When he, comes to, when he arrives in Rome, the question is going to be, why is he here? 
What is this man here for? What are the charges against him? So in a sense, we would say Paul was already addressing Caesar, so to speak. He was already making his case in advance. Rome will not judge religious matters. They won't deal with disagreements among the Jews about their laws and their traditions and their customs, right? Rome is a civil court. And uh, those Jews who were accusing Paul were well well aware of that. And uh, the same with the Jews who put up Jesus to be crucified. And so it appears that they had added charges against Paul by the time he stood before Felix. Because when he is standing before Festus, don't get confused. (laughs) Chapter 24 is Felix. He made his case. And it didn't go anywhere, and Felix kept him in jail for two years to appease the Jews and maybe get some money from Paul. Uh, Festus followed him, and he's the one who said, I can't figure this man out. King Agrippa, help me. (laughs) When he stood before Festus, apparently by then it was clear that they were adding civil charges against him because in chapter 25, verse 8, this is his defense before Festus, He says, notice in verse 8, 25, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, here it is, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Paul feels a need to say, I haven't broken any imperial laws. I have not committed any offense against Caesar as well. So they must have accused him of some sort of, some action or teaching that could be considered treasonous or sedition in all likelihood we don't know for sure but it's really consistent with everything we know about the gospels in the book of acts is that in all likelihood it was that in preaching the kingdom of god and preaching jesus as messiah king preaching jesus as the lord that paul was charged with preaching uh, uh, another some sort of political messianism he was probably charged uh, of, of, of being some sort of political agitator and fomenting an uprising because he's saying there's another king, not the emperor. And that happened in Thessalonica in chapter 17, verse 7. That's what Paul and his friends were accused of there. It says that he says there's another king, Jesus, you see. So probably that's been added in the charges against Paul, and Paul is very aware of this. And so this charge would concern what Paul taught. And if he was seen as guilty or found as guilty, it could injure not only Paul, and Paul wasn't concerned about himself, but the gospel. And so in a sense, that's the title of the sermon, The Gospel on Trial. The Gospel under examination. That's what was happening right here. Is Christianity a direct threat to the state. What does Christianity stand for? What does the gospel call for? Does the gospel call for insurrection? Does the gospel call for organized insubordination or sedition against civil authorities, you see? That's what the question was right there. How would you answer that question in today's political climate. (laughs) 
in today's moment, huh? in our cultural moment? How would you answer this? You know, how you would suddenly have to answer this question from memory without a bunch of books, <laughs> blog articles, but how you would answer it from your heart, from your memory, reveals what you actually believe about the gospel, what you trust and know about the gospel and its place in any nation, under any form of government, etc. And from this whole scene here of chapter 25 and 26, in particular, I'm going to take Paul's defense there, we learn three qualities of the gospel. <clears throat> and the first quality is this, that the gospel, remember, is a message, right? The gospel is transformative, not seditious. Now, let me explain that. Uh, seditious, to be seditious is to incite rebellion against uh, organized uh, authority or, or government. The gospel is transformative, not seditious. Now, having heard Paul's defense, and we didn't get to it, you know what they concluded? Look at the last verse of chapter 32. And Agrippa said to, excuse me, chapter 26, verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free. <laughs> this man, having heard everything that Paul said, which is then summarized here, what he preached and teached, what did the king think? The king said, this man could have been set free. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, <laughs> he got himself in this mess. That's what Agrippa said. Why would that be said? Because nothing of what Paul teaches and preaches when he preaches his gospel from the prophets calls for insurrection against governing authorities. And at that time, that would have been Caesar. That's a title. Caesar is the title of the emperor of the Rome, and the emperor of Rome at that time was Nero. Nero at this time. And so the gospel is not a form of treason. The gospel is not a call to sedition. And Luke has been careful to demonstrate that throughout the book of Acts. In fact, some people take the opinion that Acts was written almost like a, uh, a legal case, to, uh, a legal document to be presented with Paul, you know, to, to show. I don't think that's the case per se, but some think of it in, in that light. Uh, we've noticed as we've made our way through the book of Acts that, yes, there are riots where Paul goes. <laughs> but Paul never calls for organized uprisings against government. He never calls for sedition. These, these riots arose, arose as a reaction. A reaction to the transformative power of the gospel in the lives of people. That's what was happening. The Spirit was blessing the preaching of Paul, sometimes in great magnificent ways, and people reacted. Sometimes, or most of the time, it was Jews. They reacted to the, uh, this gospel message that threatened their traditions, threatened their position underneath Rome and their control of things, threatened their culture and all of that. And sometimes the reaction came from Gentiles, especially businessmen, <laughs> whose livelihoods were threatened because nobody was buying their little idols anymore <laughs> because they've been set free from that. And so all these uprisings were reactions to the gospel's transformative power. Let me put it this way. Christian faith recognizes that God alone has ultimate authority. Amen? 
God alone has intrinsic authority. He is the creator. He is therefore the sovereign king of the universe. Amen? All other authorities are derived from God's authority. And as creator, he has exercised his authority through derivative authorities in governments, the households, and the church. Um, and although the, the Christian faith recognizes this, that God alone has ultimate authority, it calls for submission to all the other sub-authorities under God, right? In governments, in households, and in the church. You find that throughout the New Testament. Uh, we are called to submit to the, to the authorities that God has established for society's peace and order. Now here's the rub, of course, even when those who govern, and the majority are, sinners, sinners who undoubtedly will stray from true justice and their God-given mission. And yet we're called to submit to them. That's the rub. Romans 13, this became a, a, a newly discovered chapter in the Bible for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Romans 13, let, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. By the time Paul was experiencing this standing before Agrippa, he had already written this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, and so forth. Now, of course, they, very few live up to God's standards of justice and, and righteousness, but maybe put it this way, if God had not established authorities, it would be much worse. It could be worse here. We could be living in sub-Africa. We could be living in Ukraine. It could be worse. But God's established what He's established for His own purposes, and we are to submit now there's, Peter echoes this when his writings to the scattered, persecuted church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him. Paul's case, that would have been Nero and Festus. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by Doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, or show honor to whom honor is due. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Hmm. Well, Luke also has been careful in his documentation of the early church to show us that there are limits to this submission, right? Remember when Peter was charged, along, among others, to stop preaching the gospel, he said we must, in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. 
In other words, the principles derived that uh, we disobey God-ordained authorities when God-ordained authorities either command us to disobey God or keep us from obeying God. And of course, then the next rub comes, well, how do we interpret what government's saying? Which government are we under? How far do you go? Uh, I'm not going to go into all that today. We lived that for two years, right? So, I'm just making this point now. The issue here is that the gospel's on trial. Is the gospel really a, something that, a message that calls for organized sedition and taking over the world in that way? The issue really was that the life-changing power of the gospel, the transformative power of the gospel, today, we put it this way, may threaten a culture's consensus regarding what is right or wrong. Let me say that again. The, the, the transformative power of the gospel may threaten a culture's consensus about what is right or wrong because it goes against it because it flows from truth versus falsehood, right? And so the culture will feel threatened. And today, I mean, wow, just this week, today there are people, right, picketing in front of Roman Catholic churches not because of their religion, but because of what is the product of their religion. It is, you know, the pro-life position in most Catholic churches. They're the most visible in some ways, so they're, that's where they are today. And this, this recent leak of the Supreme Court uh, decision that is about to be <clears throat> made a reality that will be modified in some way. Imagine they've already said that, but nevertheless, uh, that is an example of what I'm talking about, you see. And there was a time in my early childhood and my parents' age, when the, the ethics of the Bible, when Christian morality was seen generally as a positive thing, he's a church-going man, you know, that sort of thing. That was the leave it to beaver age, right? Uh, some of you still live in that. You watch it over and over. Right? Yeah, okay, it was, it was the leave it to beaver age, but that, that, that is behind us now. And Christian ethics, Christian morality is no longer seen, certainly not as something really good, but not even as a viable option, because now it is seen as a threat to the consensus of what is right or wrong in our culture, you see. And so we face great hostility now. You know, we, are at, we're, we're, we are going upstream against a set of rapids now. We're not being carried along by the culture. It's contrary to it and so but this is all the result of what not of organized sedition <laughs> not of treason against our government it's the the result of the light of truth that has changed people's lives and the more the culture gets darker the brighter the light shines you see the apostle called christ's people to live at peace with all romans 12 18 so as far as that depends upon you be at peace with all men the gospel and the apostles call us to live quiet lives. First uh, Thess 4.11, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And the gospel calls us all to live with due respect for governing authorities. We already read those verses. But when we engage the culture, there will be negative reactions. 
and there will be more and more of those. Oh, someone once wrote that culture is religion externalized. In other words, culture is the reflection of what we believe, right, about life, about life's biggest question, our hopes, and so forth. And right now, our expression of what we believe is coming head into where the culture is, has been heading for a while now as to what it believes. And so there's going to be this conflict, but let it not be because you somehow confuse this message of the gospel with political ideology. And that's, that's yeah, a problem with many Christians today. Let me say this right now. I won't go much deeper in this. It gets, again, I'll get into some mud here, get stuck, quicksand. I want to move on. <laughs> but listen, our weapons, let me just make this application. Our weapons are the same as Paul's weapons, and that they are what? Words, truth. The words of the truth, not swords. Our weapons are not the feeble weapons, and I say feeble, not the feeble weapons of political power because they don't change hearts. Uh, they are the spirit-empowered words of truth that take every th thought captive and bring it to obedience to Christ. They are words of truth, the words of truth that conquer and defeat ultimately um, all human uh, philosophy and false ways of explaining the answers to life's big questions. You know, what is humanity? What is life? And so forth. Why are we here? Spirit-empowered words. The sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God, you see. That is our tool. And sometimes, and I see with some Christians, your engagement with the culture, amen, engage. I'm not talking about becoming a monk and withdrawing. I'm not talking about isolationism. But, but your engagement with the culture, if it always uses political language and political ideologies, that becomes confused with that is the Christian faith. That is not Christianity. It is not the gospel. It may be the product of biblical thinking, but it is not the words of truth that change hearts. So let there be more gospel in your encounters with political discussion. Not, no, not, I'm not seeking and I'm not encouraging the absence of political language. I'm saying it's starting to get confused. People think our political position is Christianity. It is not. You can be a Christian and live in today's Russia, in Soviet Union of the past, in China. The gospel is something much more powerful than political power. And thank God for that. And so the first point, I went a bit long, sorry. The gospel is transformative, not seditious, but it, you know, the moment's right for this right now. <laughs> so the second point is that the gospel, second quality is that the gospel provides glorious, universal benefits, life-changing benefits, right? blessings. Now when I say universal, I'm not saying ultimately all people will be saved. That's not what I mean. I mean what Paul says in verse 22 and 23, that the gospel is available to all. 
Gentiles and Jews. That's what I mean. It's a word. It's not an exclusive word to one people. It is for all peoples, all nations, all tongues, all colors, all socioeconomic status, you see. Uh, verse 22, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. We would say amen. Hasn't God saved Paul over and over? And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what did they say, Paul? That the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen one, the Savior, must suffer, cross, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, resurrection, he, Jesus, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And how is Jesus proclaiming light to all? First, he did it um, uh, directly when he, when he was on earth, yes, but he equipped the apostles with the Spirit to do that, to go make disciples of all nations. Now, that's what I mean by universal. Now, let's think about this. Every time that Paul... Uh, Throughout these trials, in particular, I'm thinking the three major trials here, not before the Sanhedrin per se, but the, throughout all three trials, when he's standing before civil authorities, he consistently focuses on what? The gospel. Not on political theory. He focuses on the gospel three times. This is what Christian witness is. This is what Christian testimony is. What is it, a, what is it a testimony to? What are you and I witnesses of? Not in the same way as Paul, not eyewitnesses, but we are witnesses to the fact that God raised his son, Jesus of Nazareth, from the dead. And that's it. If that didn't happen, end of story, we're the most to be pitied, 1 Corinthians 15. If it did happen, pay attention. A man rose from the dead. <laughs> what does he have to say? <laughs> so let's hear him. It all pivots on the resurrection. And Paul goes after the resurrection over and over. And so it's about what? It's about Christian witness. It's about keeping the main thing the main thing. That's our witness. It may sound silly to ears, and, uh, uh, and of course it does. But the gospel is the power of God under salvation. And it could be in the middle of what someone thought was a political discussion that it turned out to be the moment that God opens their eyes. Why? Not because you gave a better political argument, but because you gave them Christ, you see. And you might think in your mind, well, Christ or the gospel is not a comeback to their political position. It is a comeback to the reason they have that political position, which is what? They're lost, dead, and blind. I'm urging here more confidence in the gospel's power. Now, who's Paul's audience? Well, there was a bunch of people there. But primarily, he's focusing on King Agrippa, right? King Herod Agrippa II, the most successful of the four Herods, the last of the Herodian dynasty. And so he's standing before him who is the king of the Jews at this point, you know, and Rome decides who's the king of the Jews, right? <laughs> but you know what I mean. He's a puppet, but still he is the king of the Jews. He has this delegated authority. And Paul, what's he do? He tells his personal story. He says, I was a Pharisee. You all know that. He talks about his fanatical persecution against this teaching. So he's saying, I, I, I wasn't duped. I was, I was against this. And then he tells of his dramatic conversion Damascus Road, the light, 
And then he tells of his commission. I was sent to preach this message, right? That's what he does. Now, history tells us, and we know this from other sources, Josephus and other documents, history tells us that Agrippa, this Agrippa right here, um, wanted to be seen as a loyal Jew. He had been appointed to be king of the Jew. He was over them and so forth. But uh, Agrippa was a Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob. But he longed to be accepted as a full Jew, or at least belonging to Israel and so forth. And I think Paul understands this, and Paul understands the position that Agrippa's in. He understands the position he's in. He knows what's going on. There's a lot of drama here. And so Paul goes straight to that which is the resurrection, and he, which is the core of his gospel, and he understands where that places Agrippa when he, when he preaches the resurrection. Verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now Paul knows that Agrippa knows this that the majority view among the Jews, and even the Sanhedrin, the majority view was that of the Pharisees, which was what? That there is a resurrection of the dead at the end. Okay, he knows that's the majority view. The Sadducees' view was the minority view, that there is no such thing as a resurrection or angels or any of that. And so he knows that Agrippa knows this when he appeals and speaks of the resurrection. And so if Agrippa wants to be seen as a loyal Jew, as belonging among them, he better fit himself into into the majority view. And so Paul kind of has him in 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 an interesting place, you know. And what he's arguing for is this. He's saying, look, I think you believe in the resurrection, or at least you want to, (laughs) maybe even for political reasons. But why should it seem amazing to any of you if you believe in the resurrection at the end that God could raise a man in the middle? (laughs) One man. And that man, I'm telling you, is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ, and that this is what the prophets taught, that he would suffer and then be raised from the dead. And so, Paul launches into that. And then, he tells what the essence of what he's teaching about this gospel that comes through faith in the one who was raised from the dead. And it's all in verse, 13, verse 18. I've been sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by Faith in me. That's what Jesus said to Paul, you see. And that's the essence of his teaching. And what Paul preaches, if it's received by faith, and this is very important because it applies to every one of you, not just to King Agrippa, but what Paul preaches, which is summarized here, if you believe it, you receive it by faith, Paul tells us it results in four things right here. It sets people free from spiritual darkness. It sets people free from bondage to the power of Satan and to God. And it sets people free from the guilt and condemnation of sin, providing forgiveness of sins. And it places people in a new eternal family. Just right here in that one little sentence. (laughs) He says, that's what my gospel is all about. (laughs) That's what I preach, O King. First of all, it sets people free from spiritual darkness. Verse 18, he sent me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. 
The darkness of what? The darkness of unbelief. The darkness of false ideologies, false theology, false philosophies. The darkness of ignorance. What do I mean by ignorance? Now, I don't mean intellect. intellect. I mean the darkness of being ignorant of who God is. The nature of the true God and what he has accomplished in his son. Jesus. That's ignorance. And so it's the darkness of all that that he has been sent to, to deal with. To open eyes. And having your eyes open involves more than knowledge. It results in what? It results in change and turning. Because he says there, verse 18, to open their eyes. Once your eyes are open to who Christ is, so that they may turn. You're never going to turn if you don't see, you think. If you're walking on a trail and you're looking for a place of rest, but you don't see, over here to your right, a beautiful, comfortable, resting place, you know, an all-inclusive, free retreat. <laughs> you don't see that, you won't turn to it. But when, when Paul preaches his gospel, by the Spirit's power, they may have their eyes open so that they may turn. Turn towards God, away from darkness, right? There's a link here, of course, to light with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And Jesus was linking himself with being Isaiah's servant, the servant of God who would come and be a light. There's so many passages. I'll just read you one. Isaiah 42, <clears throat> verse 6 and 7. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I've called you. He's speaking to the servant. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant uh, for the people, a light for the nations. All nations were always in the heart of God. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Spiritual darkness. You know what you were before you were a Christian? If you're a Christian today, you were blind. You lived in spiritual darkness. That is, you did not know who God truly was and how much he loved you in his son. You had no idea. And so he says, my gospel opens eyes and sets people free from spiritual darkness. Paul describes what, how, how that glorious moment takes place. And I'll just read it briefly here in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> You're familiar with it. I'll read from verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled. What is it veiled? Covered. What he's saying is, you know, the gospel is veiled. It's covered. People don't understand. They can't perceive its glory, its value, and they don't see it as a message of God's love. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, meaning believers uh, do understand the gospel. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So you're doubly blind, blind by nature and blind by the, 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 the work of satanic work to keep them from what? From seeing the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the Messiah, Christ Messiah, who is the image of God himself, you see. They don't see Jesus as, a, as God in the flesh. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, the Creator God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And what happened? There was light. <laughs> so, so the God, the Creator God who can say, let there be light, and there was light, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where do we see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, you see. And so Paul says, that's what my gospel does. <laughs> Isn't that a glorious truth, huh? That's the power of the gospel. Don't put all your efforts in getting people to check a box in the voting booth. If you put effort into that, amen, Make sure you get, put effort into helping them hear the message that will open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And then they'll always check similar boxes, I'll say. <laughs> okay. The gospel sets people free from bondage to the power of Satan to God. He's speaking here of our lusts and passions that control us. Verse 18 turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. To be converted, to become a Christian, is to experience a radical realm transfer. A radical transfer out of one realm under the dominion of sin and darkness, satanic influence, living a life controlled by my passions and my lusts, children of wrath like the rest, being moved from that into the realm of God, the kingdom of His beloved Son, right? Colossians 1.13. He has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So this is what the gospel brings, spiritual enlightenment and liberation. And not only liberation from living according to your most base human passions, but also being liberated from the guilt of sin and its consequences, which is the judgment of God, the wrath of God in the end. To be very clear, it is an eternal hell from which there is no deliverance. It is to be set free from all of that. The guilt of sin and its consequences. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. And it's the gospel that grants the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Paul, uh, it's, it's, Paul says, To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is Peter, actually, but everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins in his name. Amen. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is wrath coming, but none for those who are in Christ because he has absorbed the full penalty on your behalf. And lastly, it's Paul's gospel that places people in a new family. Again, to verse 18 that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place. 
a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We looked at this some time ago just briefly. Um, To have a place is to have a new life, uh, belong to a new family, a new community. The Greek term there, kleros, refers to having a portion or a share of an inheritance. You'll have your portion, you see, in this great inheritance. And and what is our great inheritance? What is our great hope? Our, Our great hope and our great inheritance is eternal fellowship with the true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the new heavens and the new earth. A fulfilling existence that will never end. And again, that becomes all the more important when, like the Strader family, uh, you, you see someone depart this life. And it forces you to ask the question, how do you solve life's greatest riddle? Death. The gospel gives us the solution in Christ. A place in an inheritance. A piece of share in eternal life in the resurrection fellowship with God all who believe in Jesus are transformed from strangers to full-blooded sons and members in an eternal family he the father has qualified us Paul says to share in the inheritance with the saints in light qualified yours to be a christian to be to be a christian is to be a saint who is qualified to share in this eternity not by your merits but by the lord jesus christ not your own moral efforts but paul says uh, that jesus said to him that they are sanctified how consecrated set apart by faith in me you see all of this comes how and this is great news It all comes how? Not by you going out and doing something today. Not by you opening your checkbook and writing some amount down. Not by you outdoing other people. All this comes about how? By faith in Jesus. By faith in Christ. Now, the full orb picture of what a changed life of faith looks like was was displayed there in verse 20 when he says that he preached to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What does he mean is when you have faith, that's what you, that's what you do. You, you start living a new life, but, but that new life is not meritorious. It's the evidence of this new life that is in you. And so Paul, in essence, is saying, this is my message, O king. Is this sedition, Agrippa? Agrippa's in a hard spot. What do, you know, Festus is in a harder spot. What do we write on his charge sheet? <laughs> Paul says, this is my message. Is it treason? Is it sedition? Hmm, interesting. Beloved, the gospel, Luther used to say, and I'm summarizing him, the gospel is a word that gives us Christ. That's all it is. Christ is the Savior who gives us everything else, you see. All we need. He is our payment. He is our righteousness. He is our justification. He 
is our sanctification. He is the wisdom of God. The gospel is a word that gives you Christ, offers you Christ. Believe the word, you receive him. He is the one who gives all that you need. And that's why he can say it is finished. And that's why we believe in that Reformation slogan of what? That scripture alone teaches us that salvation comes by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God alone may receive all the glory. And I just met lastly and most briefly, and I promise, <laughs> the gospel also, thirdly, engenders love for our enemies. That's not what Paul says, but that's what Paul's doing. And Paul himself is a product of his own gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? Because Paul stands before this man, a prisoner, in chains, and as I read through how he interacts with him, you could, you could begin to feel his bleeding heart for this man's soul, who has, who has power over him. Think about this. So, verse 19 Therefore, O King Agrippa was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And then he starts talking again about how Jesus called him. And Festus stands up in verse 24 and says, it says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. <laughs> you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He said, I can't write that to Nero, <laughs> but that's my opinion. You're just simply a nut. <laughs> and the world will tell you that. If you answer what? You answer all these ideologies with what? Jesus rose from the dead. You need to believe in him. He, said. he says, you're out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Verse 25, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Then he speaks about a grip in the third person. Watch how he turns it. For the king knows about these things. Hmm. And to him, I speak boldly. Then he turns to Agrippa. <laughs> For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Agrippa, I know you're an observant man. <laughs> For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, you who want to be accepted by the Jews, <laughs> do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Hmm. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I think that's how we should take it, as a, ne as a negative sort of a, you know, I better deflect here, I'm feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> the prisoner has me in the hot seat. Would you persuade me, King Agrippa, to be a Christian? And then Paul's bleeding heart response, he said, whether short or long, I would want to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You could almost hear him rattling them. Hmm. The court is silent. They leave, and they talk to each other and said, this man's done nothing, nothing wrong. Hmm. You see there the dawning of th this Christ-produced love for this man's soul. You understand here, Agrippa and Bernice his wife, to whom before, who was the president, were blood brother and sister. And yet they were married incestuously. And he wanted to be accepted by Jews. Why were they doing this? 
Because as Paul preaches, they were in bondage to satanic influence, blind to their sin, blind to the darkness, blind to the consequences of what's coming for this lifestyle. He saw these two people in front of him, among others, who were destined for eternal wrath, and his bleeding heart poured out for them. And he says, I would that you would be just like me and know the peace and joy and liberty of the gospel of salvation in Christ. Except for these chains, he says. I don't wish these upon anyone. Here's the man on trial standing before power and authority, and he's the free man. (laughs) He's the free man. Why? Because he's free from sin's darkness, from blindness. He's free from its bondage. He's even free, and this is how far the gospel can take you and me, free to show love and mercy to those who persecute him. Because you know why? Paul really believes the gospel. That's why. You don't need a PhD to love. You don't need to go to seminary for four years to, to love your enemies. You need to be in Christ and let his spirit and his word dominate your life and your thinking and your trajectory and your hope. Let that and not other things fill your minds and hearts, but let that gospel and that truth and that love of God for you in Christ, that love that God has even for the worst of sinners like those out there that you know that are arguing against you, that are outside of churches today with pickets. That's, that's how powerful the gospel is. You say, you, you're too idealistic. That sounds too high. Maybe it sounds too high. But it has happened a million times in the last 2,000 years that Christians have laid down their lives for others. Surely, we could lay down some things for the sake of an audience for the gospel. Hmm. Why record three similar trials and take up so much ink at the end of his book to vindicate the gospel? To vindicate the gospel. The gospel is not a call to sedition It is a life-transforming word that gives us Christ, and Christ gives us liberation from blindness, darkness, condemnation of sin, and places us in an eternal family and enables us to go as far as this, loving those who put the chains on us. Let's pray. Love you, God. It feels so cold.